questions? <clears throat> no, I don't think so. <clears throat> Sorry, goodness. Welcome back to the Prevet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino, and we are back to talk about the letters of rec, Vemcast, soft people skills with veterinarians and non-vets. But today is an odd-numbered episode, which means we have a veterinarian, Dr. Wendy Mandisi. Dr. Mandisi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Before we start to talk about your topic, which is ability to handle animals, will you tell us undergrad, vet school, post-vet school, where did we go? How did we end up at UF? Oh, absolutely. Well, actually, my um, my undergraduate degree is in music, so I was sort of a... <laughs> oh, I don't think... I, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, Singing yeah. Singing instruments? Uh, instrument. I actually play bassoon. Well, who, why wouldn't you? <laughs> That's kind of out of pocket. Where did that I know, come from? I know. Yeah, I was I was a music major originally, a music education major, and so uh, that's what I wanted to do. I um, I realized that I had to be willing to travel anywhere to play in an orchestra, which was my goal. And so, um, you know, I was in, engaged, and my husband had a you know a real job, and so I needed a plan B. And uh, so I actually had gotten a job um, as a receptionist in a small animal hospital, and realized I really really loved veterinary medicine. So had to take a few extra prerequisites, obviously. Uh, as a music major, I didn't have a whole lot of my prerequisites for veterinary medicine. So I wound up getting a second degree in biology from uh, University of Central Florida. Um, Go nice. while Yeah, while uh, working um, as a veterinary technician, worked up to being a veterinary technician. Um, and then I applied uh, to veterinary school. But I uh, wound up uh, working for about five years as a veterinary technician um, before uh, being admitted to veterinary school, which happened on my third application. And oh, so, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so you so, have passion for folks who are re- repeat oh, applicants. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Do yeah. you, why do you think it took three tries? Um, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, I had, you know, good grades, not the, you know, uh, the straight A's that a lot of applicants have. Um, and so, you know, it's hard to say. I interviewed all three years, but it didn't actually uh, get admitted until my third year. So, And was that to UF? Where did you go All to were school? UF, yeah, okay. UF. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, now, do you still play the bassoon? I do not. Um, I gave private lessons uh, all the way up until about my second year of vet school. I still gave private lessons and performed a little, um, but then I actually um, had my daughter while I was in veterinary school, and so then time became pretty oh, short. So <laughs> what year was that? Uh, she was born the beginning of my fourth year. Oh, my God. Yeah. That could, this could be a whole podcast episode, too, about <laughs> yes. how you balance school and having a tiny, yeah. tiny infant. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely a challenge. Oh but my God. Uh, Yeah. <laughs> and then you and your current title is? I am a clinical associate professor in primary care and dentistry. Is what are How are your days broken up? Is it mostly clinical? Are we also teaching? Are we, what does our, our scope look like? Mostly clinical and clinical, I'm a clinical instructor, so we have students on all of our clinical cases. Um, so most, that is what most of my time um, is made up of. I, I also uh, manage the practice-based clerkship, uh, which sends students out to small animal practices um, for them to work one-on-one with a small animal practitioner. And so um, I do that part-time too, and then a little bit of research here and there, um, but mainly it's clinical work. What is primary care research looking like? What What are your interests? Oh, really? I mean, it can primary care, of course. You know, as general practitioners, we see a little bit of everything. So, really, um, you you have the ability to research um, anything that you want. Um, the studies that I have done most recently, um, we actually um, did a study that was supported by the Fear Free Organization, which actually we can talk about a little when it comes to handling animals. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, that um, w- really what we did there is we measured the heart rate 
experience of dogs and cats, um, both in the exam room being examined with their owner present and then in a, in, a, in a treatment area. And so what we found in that study, which was actually published in the Journal of Small Animal Practice last year, and so what we found in that study is um, animals are much more comfortable being examined in the exam room with their owners, which of course seems intuitive, but it's good to have, you know, actual data supporting that. So, 100%. Yeah. And then um, I, I am uh, currently in the process of um, uh, writing up a study that we did, um, that I did actually with a first-year veterinary student through a program called the FBSP, or Florida Veterinary Scholars Program. And uh, we did that. Um, we actually were we had 100 dogs that we um, did both free catch urine samples on. Um, well, mainly that's what we did is free catch urine samples and evaluated um, how much bacterial contamination um, that we can see in just a sample that's caught uh, freely when a dog urinates. What are we? Can we talk about the results? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. We're still we're still um, kind of uh, evaluating all of the data, but by far, it's very unlikely for there to be a contaminated sample with a free catch sample. And so that was actually a, a study that was supported by Fear Free as well, uh, because the current accepted technique in collecting a urine sample uh, that you want to be um, you know f- devoid of any contamination is to do what's called a cystocentesis, where you put a needle into the bladder. And oh, so, oh heavens! Yeah. Yeah, so yes. this is so much better for the dog, <laughs> yeah. for the client. Oh, I love That's that. That's what we hope to show. And so, again, we're sort of still evaluating the data, but it was actually very um, uncommon to find contamination in those samples. We love research. Yes, yes. If you, if a five-year-old came up to you mm-hmm. and said, what kind of veterinarian are you? What do you yeah. do? How would you describe primary care to a five-year-old? I mean, I guess for a five-year-old, I would say, first of all, that I'm a small animal veterinarian, meaning I mainly see dogs and cats. When I was in general practice, I saw what we call pocket pets or um, our small mammals, but um, mainly dogs and cats. So I think I would I would describe it that way. And as far as what I do, uh, to, again, especially to a five-year-old, we would say that we just uh, like to do an annual exam, make sure that that pet is healthy and happy. Um, eating the right food, weighing the right amount, and um, that there's no, um, you know, health problems uh, going on, and that we would also see that same pet when they're sick, when they're not feeling well, um, when they're limping, you know, scratching, anything that might indicate that they're not feeling well. I think it's how I describe it to a young child. Yeah. Would do you, do you agree that primary care, a huge piece of it, is the client relationships and forming a strong bond with someone who's going to come back year after year right. to see you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think any uh, clinical veterinarian, I would say that um, whether it's primary care or specialty practice, that that client relationship is going to be uh, one of the most important parts of making sure that your patient gets the care that it needs. Being able to um, actually communicate the need for whatever it is you're recommending um, is a very important skill to learn. Um, but, uh, yeah, definitely if you're a primary care veterinarian, then you're not just seeing that animal when it has a special problem. You're seeing them for well visits. You're, you know, and, yes, that client relationship is very important because, again, if you're not portraying or, or conveying to that client um, why you recommend what you're recommending, then they're not as likely to do it. And then you might have an animal that's not on heartworm prevention, for example, or flea prevention or not coming in regularly for its um, for its visits. So, again, that, that communication is extremely important. Something's really bothering me that I haven't asked about. Yeah. You're very spooky. 
<laughs> and you're just like, I just think like it's important to know that veterinarians are more than their career. Oh, you have a sure. life outside of a career. You're yeah. a mom, you've got things going on. But will you just talk about like your general spookiness? Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I, th- I think everybody that works with me at, um, you know, well, any place I've worked on uh, knows that I'm a big fan of Halloween, really like scary movies, you know, like to hit up. Uh, Halloween Horror Nights every uh, every year, and so Ew, do you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, heck. I mean, the lines are you know. Now I'm getting to the age where you, but I don't you like love to the be lines. scared. Oh, I do. Yeah, I always mm-hmm. have. Yeah, since I was uh, since I was young. My my whole family's kind of that way. We've oh. all loved scary stuff. I grew up watching scary movies with my dad, and so um, so yeah, it's a yeah, I love it. The bassoon is a scary instrument. Uh, it it can goes be, very sure. <laughs> those bass notes. Okay, it all comes together. It can be. Yes. So you're here to talk about ability to handle animals, yes. which is one of the 16 to 20 um, qualities on the letters of rec. Have right. you written letters for pre-vets to go to vet school? Oh, absolutely. Do you know the form that I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you, you're familiar with the form. You know that you have to score these folks on a scale of excellent to poor in right. all these areas. So let's right. talk about ability to handle animals, which to me is like so it could be subjective. Sure. Yeah. And it's yeah. It's also they're learning, so it yeah. can be kind of harsh if someone's like average. But right. when you're approaching that part of the the letter, what are you thinking about? Well, I mean, one of the first things I'm thinking about is how often have I actually witnessed that totally. applicant, um, you know, handling animals. Sometimes we've just seen a couple of interactions, and sometimes we know, you know, that that uh, applicant has worked with us as a technician, and we are very familiar with their an- animal handling s- skills. So that's one of the things that I'm thinking about. And I will, I mean, I'll tell you, there's it, it is a little subjective, and there's so you know, every practitioner has a a different way that they they often like to handle animals. But in general, um, if you have a really super scared, frightened animal, um, it's not your that interaction is not going to go well. And so, um, a big part of you know, again, we're all fear free certified at, at at UF in our primary care department. And so, uh, one of the things that we really look for um, that that fear free really you know talks about quite a bit is kind of reading that animal and seeing you know what's going on here. Is this animal very protective of its owner? Or are we seeing some aggression because of that or are as is often the case are they just really really terrified and what are some things that we can do to help that animal um, not be quite as scared maybe that's offering treats maybe that's spending some time giving them lots of attention and rubbing and petting uh, before we start doing our examination a lot of times it's going very slowly and so for an applicant one of the things that we, again, not as part of the admissions committee, but if I'm writing that letter of recommendation for a student, you know, it will be, does this, uh, does this person understand that? Do they understand that you really need to read your, your patient before you start trying to handle them? Some of them are super easy. They're very happy to be here and they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're really, uh, you know, just, just happy animals. And, and so that's really easy. But when we can really tell, uh, you know, how oft, how much that person has handled animals, it's what to do when the animal is being aggressive or scared, or can you, you know, kind of tease out exactly why this animal is aggressive. Aggression has so many different faces and so many different causes, and part of our job is being able to figure out, um, you know, what is the reason for this animal's aggression. Will you dive deeper into fear-free? I think it's something some of our audience 
has heard of, maybe yeah. has heard nothing about. So sure. what is it? Well, it's actually an organization you can become certified in fear-free handling. Whole practices can also be certified in fear-free. And so um, really it's just a set of guidelines in, again, reading animal behavior, knowing exactly um, you know why that animal is, or getting as close as you can to knowing why that animal is uh, being uh, you know fearful or aggressive. And also having tools and techniques in order to be able to handle that animal in a way that's not going to make it even worse for you when they come back next time, right? So if you, if an animal has a really, really bad experience and maybe has been, you know, manhandled or, or you know, treated roughly in an in, in a attempt to restrain, um, the next time it's going to be even worse. Whereas if that animal is very fearful and you take a little bit of time, you maybe give them some treats, you know, sometimes that's not even going to be doable. And part of fear-free is being able to say, you know what, you need to come back again for another visit. And this time we're going to give you some medications to give often the night before and the morning of to take the edge off that anxiety. Because some animals are so anxious, no matter what we do, it's just not going to go well. And so we, you know, part of Fear Free is knowing that and knowing when to say, you know what, it's just not going to happen today. We need a different approach. And so next time maybe it's without the owner, for example, if that animal is very protective of its owner. Or next time maybe it's with the owner. Maybe they do better. And it's just sort of knowing that every animal is different. And um, the best way to be able to handle those patients um, so it doesn't, you know, it's not uh, distressing for them, their their owner, and it makes it easier for you the next time they come in. Speaking of owners, how often are you or and maybe mm-hmm. other veterinarians, do you think, it, taking what the owner says into consideration. So if the owner is like, oh, they're feeling blank because of blank, right. are you believing them off the bat? Are you kind of putting that in the back of your mind? How often are we finding that like they actually do know what's happening? I mean, it's always really, really important to listen to your client. Nobody knows their pet better than they do. And so I think maybe it's a, a mistake when veterinarians say, um, oh, you know, okay, you know, what, you know, whatever, you know, they and, and not really take that into consideration just because that client doesn't have a veterinary background or an animal background. They know their pet better than anyone. Now, sometimes they may, um, what we call anthropomorphize, meaning they are you know, just making assumptions about mm-hmm. their animal's behavior that may not, you know, probably be entirely accurate. But listening to what they're saying is really, really important and it can really help you. I mean, you know, a lot of times, you know, I had a, actually had a patient recently and um, he was very, very fearful and we figured out a way, um, you know, for him, we figured out he actually did not like being in an area where there are a lot of other dogs. And so we, you know, were able to establish that pretty early on in a, you know, in the in the run situation or, you know, where he's, even though he couldn't see the other dogs the way our kennel is set up, he could still hear them and know that they were there. We put him in a separate quiet area and he was much, much more relaxed. Afterwards, we found out from the owner, the dog has been attacked twice by other dogs. And so, um, you know, of course, he's going to be very fearful around other dogs. But again, that information is really important for us to know, because if, um, you know, you have a dog that's been a victim of attack by other dogs, of course, they're not going to want to be in a run situation or a kennel where they can hear a lot of other dogs around. And so the client often has very valuable information to share. So while, while their assumptions may not always be you know, clinically relevant, um, a lot of times they can tell us things that are going to make us think, oh, okay, well, he had a really bad experience with X. Let's try to, you know, avoid anything that might trigger a response to that. Completely. 
Are, are you a proponent of having pre-vets get fear-free certified? Do we oh, need to absolutely. help them with their ability? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a it's a very valuable skill set to have. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's I think it's a great program. And probably just time and being oh, yeah. in a clinic and letting someone, you know, moving from shadow to volunteer to tech, you know, to so that you can put your hands the practice. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's not you really I mean, as some people are just intuitively a little bit more in tune to, you know, being able to see animals and read their body language. I think that some people are just naturally better about that, but there is absolutely no substitute for just experience in doing it. Knowing that, oh, when a cat is making, you know, you know, his ears are doing this, it probably needs, again, some of that is taught in the fear-free program too, but to know that, you know, with this body language indicates he's probably very scared or very, you know, it's, it's, Probably he's probably about to become very aggressive. This is a warning sign. To read those is really important, and there's n- there's no substitute, no training that can take place short of just lots of hands-on experience. For sure. Mm-hmm. Let's talk um, pet peeves and uh-ohs. When you're in the clinic and you have seen somebody doing something, yeah. what are a couple that you're like, I can't stand it when someone blanks or like, ooh, this makes me cringe. Like, right. what are a couple of those? Well, I mean, we don't we don't love, for example, um, you know, in restraining cats, we don't love, you know, doing the scruff technique, which again, I mean, again, as a technician, that's how I learned it too. It restrains them. Is it painful? Well, no, it's probably not painful, but it can be distressing to the cat. Do you have to resort to that sometimes? Maybe occasionally you do, but most of the time what we've realized is that uh, much more gentle handling techniques are more effective. Wrapping them in a towel, mm-hmm. uh, restraining in a different way can also be more effective. I mean, we're we're doing things that they're not going to like, and there's no way around that right. in veterinary medicine. Sometimes we have to draw blood or give injections, and it's not always going to be something they like. But um, when somebody goes immediately to a more forceful restraint, um, such as scruffing and stretching. And, you know, we don't always, you know, love that. Again, you know, I mean, it's a common practice. So we're an educational facility. And so we usually try to use that time to instruct students in, well, let's try this a different way. A lot of times it's just because they don't know any sure, different and that's sure. how they've been taught. Um, but but by, by you know, kind of talking them through it they and, and being able to see, look, you don't really need to do that. You know, you can give an injection often with a cat just sitting on the table with just gentle restraint. Um, also, for you know, another example is, you know, for example, a big dog, you know, if a dog weighs 140 pounds, physical forceful restraint is rarely going to be effective. You just, you're not going to be able to do that. So by, you know, quote, manhandling and, and really trying to, you know, hold that animal down, um, you're not going to really be successful because they're going to probably be able to get away no matter what you're doing. So probably not starting with that as a, it, it's it's not ideal. Yeah. Let's, let's think of other ways that we can distract this animal with treats or food. Or again, if we need medications, let's use medications. It's going to be a lot better for everybody. And I, what I really struck, stuck out to me when Dr. Mandisi was talking about this was we're at an educational facility mm-hmm. and we're here to teach. And I would encourage all pre-vets, get a mentor who's willing to teach you. Oh, there, absolutely. There are yeah. folks who maybe would just let you do it and yes. maybe kind of judge that behind your back right. or yeah. not have a really gentle way to correct you. So finding someone who's willing to give you feedback and take the feedback yes. when it's given to you. Yes. Yeah. Let's say, because you serve on the admissions committee. I do. Let's say you get a packet Mm -hmm. and you open it up and that letter for under ability to handle animals, Mm -hmm. a veterinarian has checked either average, Mm -hmm. below average, or poor. What are your thoughts 
Because I, I will tell you, I immediately scroll down and read the what the what the uh, reviewers actually writing. Mm. Because what I've realized about a lot of the packets and the and the recommendation letters is that some people think average just means. Like, that's what most applicants are going to be. And so by, you know, I don't look automatically at the number without going down and reading. Because then sometimes you read and they're like, All they're the time. doing great. Yes. You know, I absolutely recommend this person. You know, if they say, oh, I'm a little bit, con-, you know, if they actually write, I'm a little bit concerned about some of the handling techniques. You know, sometimes they'll say, I just don't know if they've had enough time and enough time with animals. And again, what they write tells me a lot more than the number because everybody interprets the number differently for some of them they just mean average is going to be that's going to be yeah a very acceptable applicant some people say five but some people won't put that five or the whatever the you know top mark is unless that is just an absolute rock star they've been doing it for seven years you know so so it's a lot more about what they write than the actual number so when I see that I scroll down and I I mean I'm going to read it anyway but that's one of the things I'm keeping my eye out for is are you actually describing poor handling techniques or do or is it just that it's acceptable to you? I mean, I feel like we could talk about the subjectivity sure. of ratings forever. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm glad you pointed that out. And mm-hmm. I honestly, I think that's more of good advice for folks who are on admissions committees and yeah. folks who are writing letters. I pause when I see an average because I see so many who get straight excellence. Yes. And so I'm like, I agree with you that somebody might just say, yeah, they are average and average isn't bad. Right. But they're competing against students who are getting excellence. So I'm glad you're really reading the letters. Oh, yes. Because you're right. Often the letters are glowing. Yes. And they mark it average. Yes. Like, Everybody right. looks at that number system very differently. Completely. I mean, that's true with, 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 you know, grading too in clinical rotations. I mean, everybody looks at the number system um, differently. And so what they write is far more important than the actual numbers they're giving. Sure. Yeah. So I think you were going to tell us a story where maybe did you have a below, <laughs> like an average or below average experience? Uh, well, it was just, I mean, it was one of my, as a technician, it was one of my first um, experiences as a technician, you know, handling an angry cat. Um, and so I, um, you know, w- when you're holding a cat and they, you know, cats versus dogs, you know, dogs bite, but cats have way more weapons at their disposal. So <laughs> not only do they bite, but they have claws that they that they put to good use sometimes too. And so um, I was, you know, holding an animal for a veterinarian that was, you know, examining the cat and the cat completely just freaked out. And so I let go, you know, Oops. because, um, you know, I didn't want to get scratched or it, so I let go. And uh, my my mentor uh, said at the time, he's like, "Look, you know, your your reaction when that happens doesn't need to be. You can't see my hands, but like hands off. It needs to be." And he puts his hands like down on the cat, and I was like, "Okay, you know, lesson learned. I need to make sure to hold on to the animal." And probably about a week later, the same exact thing happened. And I just held on to this cat. The cat completely like shredded my arm (laughs) to, I mean, you know, I was bleeding. And the whole time the, the clinician was yelling, let go, let go. And the I said, same but you, clinician? yes, I said, but you, you told me not to let go. Yeah. <laughs> Last week, you told me not to let go. And so afterwards, I mean, I can laugh about that now, you know, after a few bandage changes uh, oh, later, God. but um, the, the, my mentor said, look, part, you know, I'm sorry, I sh- it's, it's not all or, no- all or nothing. You know, I should have said, 
you need to read the situation. If you're getting injured, you're gonna you you're gonna go. have to it's let okay. go, right? But uh, you know, I didn't want to do the wrong thing. It was, I had just started as a technician, so it's a, it's a funny story now. Yes, yeah. I mean, I would have. I think I would do the same thing, like full pendulum. Like I'm never dropping this. Right. Guy. I don't care what happens to my. <laughs> he face. said not to let go, right. so I'm, I'm just gonna go. endure this pain yeah. and hold on. <laughs> you worked with pocket pets earlier yeah. in your career. Are there different ways that, I mean, oh, there sure. has to be different ways we handle yeah, those guys. Yeah. I mean, sometimes with those little guys, like if we're talking about rats and mice and um, hamsters, things like that, I mean, just the handling alone can be stressful enough. I mean, sometimes they, you know, that sounds terrible, but sometimes stress can cause sudden death in those animals. And oh, so, so I didn't do, yikes. it's very important. I didn't do a lot of work um, with birds, um, but I do, that's the same, the same is true for like parakeets and other small um, hmm. birds too, is sometimes they can, you know, just have acute heart failure secondary to, to really severe stress. So yeah, you got to be oh very careful with those guys in, in your handling techniques and does take a little uh, extra special training uh, from somebody that's done it often is, yeah. is usually what I would recommend is, um, you know, don't really do a lot of handling in those little guys and, and they can, you know, guinea pigs, for example, I mean, you can, you know, they can inflict a pretty fierce bite too when they yeah, want they've to. Got teeth. So rabbits, yeah, yeah, they definitely can. So, wow, yeah. I, I guess <clears throat> something to consider, folks. A lot of you do want to do exotics and like mm-hmm. domestic exotics. So having that strong handling yes. technique is literally critical. It's critical. I mean, rabbits are another great example. Um, rabbits actually have very fragile spines, and if you don't handle a rabbit the right way, you can actually get a spinal fracture that would you know, oh, have to result God. in euthanasia. Yeah, it actually can be. So when you're handling exotics, it is really, really important. I mean, most of the time, if you're working as a technician or an assistant um, and you are handling those animals, it's because you're working with a veterinarian that is comfortable handling those animals. So usually they can be a really good mentor and source of information on how to handle those animals. Another trained technician also uh, can be can be very valuable. But yeah. I usually don't give a lot of clout <coughs> to personal pet ownership. However, for the folks who have a lot of domestic exotics at home and have been successful in keeping them happy, healthy, and alive, that's actually a skill set because you've learned to handle them. So I I think that is something to think about, folks. If you're going to, first of all, know before you buy one of these guys, you really need to know what you're doing. (coughs) Absolutely. Yeah. that's scary. Yeah. Now, let's talk about strategy. Well, is there anything else from our list? I'll edit this out. But like gaps in knowledge, is there anything that I think you kind of hit on with the fear free? Should we go into like things that they should start doing? Like what resources? We we talked about fear free for them. Oh. Yeah, yeah. How so do they increase. I'm, yeah, I mean, again, it's just going to be as much handling, animal handling experience as you can get. Now, I will, I do want to say that we don't expect you to have like rock solid animal handling skills to be able to go to veterinary medicine when go into veterinary medicine or veterinary school. When we say that we want to see a lot of experience, it actually has less to do with your animal handling skills than it does with just being immersed in a practice type of environment. Mm-hmm. So again, with, a, with the high degree of burnout that we see in veterinary medicine for an applicant, what we really want to see is that more than just shadowing a little bit um, where you're kind of seeing the highlights of a day in veterinary medicine, really being immersed in animal care 
what that looks like, having to be part of maybe some of the difficult conversations with clients. Sure. I mean, I think that we want to see more that you know what you're getting into. And that usually is going to require a little bit more than some patchy, you know, shadowing or even, um, you know, more regular shadowing. Again, that, that, that tends to be like a highlight reel of yeah. veterinary medicine, whereas we kind of want to see that you've been, you know, quote, in the trenches and you've been part of that animal care uh, team. And that really says a lot to us about the fact that you know exactly what you're getting into. You know the field that you want to enter. It's not, you know, you know the goods and the bads about it. And so um, when we say we want a lot of experience, it actually isn't as much because of your animal handling skills, even though that's very beneficial, especially once you get onto clinics. But you are, we are going to teach that to you. We don't want to just expect that you're going to know how to do all that when you start. We have a clinical skills um, course that starts, you know, right at the beginning of that school. And so um, th those are the things that you're going to learn. The experience is more for your knowledge of the profession. If I were <clears throat> reviewing a packet, I would almost, based on what you're saying, look at the rating of ability to handle animals as how much time has this person right. spent in the practice yes. to get the responsibility to handle these animals? Absolutely. Yeah. So that, yeah, so students, instead of thinking about, oh, how well do I handle a, a, a cat, mm -hmm. a dog, a, a guinea pig, which is important, right. but it's, does the veterinarian trust me enough right. to do it and to learn yeah. from my mistakes and take the feedback? So that's kind of what we're talking about yeah, here. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, do we think, oh, I had something, something about handling the animal. Oh, we were talking about on the way over here about interviewing students and yeah. the right questions to ask to learn if they're the right student for vet med. And you're right. talking about being in the trenches. Can we just kind of talk about maybe a couple of the things a student should experience before they know they want to do this? My thought right. would be a financial conversation, whether mm -hmm. having it with a client or watching it happen with a right. veterinarian those difficult conversations, what other kinds of experiences can really show a student, this is what the profession's like, that's not the highlight reel? Yeah, I mean, I think that those financial discussions and having a knowledge of the fact that, you know, most veterinarians need a plan A, B, and C for treatment because there are financial limitations. Most clients have financial limitations, so being able to go in. I mean, if you are an applicant and you've worked enough in veterinary medicine that you can talk about those challenging discussions, that's going to show us a lot that you've been immersed in, in this field. Yeah. Um, other things would be, you know, having to have uh, quality of life discussions with clients or be part of the discussion of quality of life, um, euthanasia discussions, um, you know, uh, other types of discussions about even with coworkers about burnout and exhaustion and, uh, you know, th those types of things. I mean, those are the things that show us that you have been enough of a part of uh, the, an environment in veterinary medicine that you're familiar enough with it to go on in your studies. I really like this idea, and I don't mm -hmm. think we've talked about it enough because I think often when I'm encouraging students to learn the profession, I'm talking about like learning all the different avenues of the sure. profession and probably how to approach the application, but actually sitting in those tough conversations mm -hmm. and examining how did the veterinarian do it? Would I do it differently? How do right. I feel about this? Have yeah. I had experiences like this in my own life? Mm -hmm. Maybe you haven't had that discussion yet with a client about financials, but you've worked with a, an academic advisor or right. you know a bank or your parents and you've had those difficult discussions. Yeah. So you always think about how your personal life mirrors that professional life. Absolutely, yeah. Dr. Mandisi, we always ask our guests to give some 
big life advice to our ah. students. So this could be about you know handling animals. It could be something that you wish you would have heard during your pre-vet journey, something that they need to know, or it could just be personal Dr. Mandisi advice. Uh, yeah. But what would you tell these students who are getting ready to hopefully in the future apply? I mean, I think that I, if I was to you know pick one, um, I don't know if the right word is character trait, but character trait that would would need to be um, really well honed in order to become not just a veterinary student but a veterinarian. It would be adaptability. I mean the and and uh, often that is something that is learned over time, and so it's not you know it's something you're just going to immediately develop. But at least knowing that this is a field you have to be really adaptable to. So it's not you know going and sitting in classes and doing you know studying hard, doing well, getting you know good grades. This is a field that it's, I mean, nobody has any idea what every day, each day is going to bring. I mean, now again, there are fields in veterinary medicine where your day is going to be much more predictable. But in clinical practice, it, and which is what most applicants want to do, it is, it's, it's very unpredictable. And again, a lot of in-hospital experience. Whether And again, I, I've talked a lot about small animal because that's my focus. But if your forte is large animal, again, that clinical practice is just as, as um, important. And so, um, but again, most of the time we don't know what our days bring. And again, a lot of people, maybe they don't get in their first time and that's a really, um, get into veterinary school. And that's a very, um, you know, can, can be really hard for people that have been really high achievers for a really long time. Again, just being able to adapt and say, okay, what do I need to do differently for next year? I mean, there's just a lot of applicants for very few spots. It has nothing to do with you personally. It's just, you know, sometimes there's just a few things that need to be tweaked. And so um, just being adaptable to that, to, to know, you know, how to get that feedback about what to do next um, is really, really important. And then that character will carry you on into veterinary school as well. Again, every clerkship is going to be different. Every professor is going to be different. You really just have to be, I mean, it, you know, it can, it can be a, an emotional roller coaster yeah. going from one clerkship to the next and the different expectations. And, um, you know, of course, that's once you get onto clinics, the first couple of years are a little bit more, um, I guess, consistent. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's something that is, it's, it's a really important character trait. Again, not just as a veterinary applicant, veterinary student, but as a veterinarian too. You really have to be able to adapt every day to your, to, to you know, brand new surroundings, brand new experiences. You really do. Yeah. I, I mean, just talking about like the curriculum, two weeks on a rotation, you learn, you meet someone, you meet mm -hmm. your interns, you meet your residents, you meet your faculty, and then two weeks, it's over, and then you have mm -hmm. to go to the next one. You have right. to be adaptable. And, and there are expectations for paperwork are, yes. are going to be different. You yeah, have it's to be yeah, like, pivoting yeah. at yeah. all times. Yeah. And then as a clinician, you come out, you don't know what the, your client, your, mm -mm. every client is going to be different. Every animal is going to be different. Yes. Uh, yeah. I like that you said that adaptability does take time to build. I know mm -hmm. that when I was in my 20s, oh, no, I was so rigid. <laughs> and a lot of y'all are in that 20s or earlier space and maybe haven't had to become adaptable yet. So I would encourage you to force yourself into situations that make you adaptable. Absolutely. If you want to yeah. be in this profession, maybe that, what, what could they be doing? Like, is it, is it joining like a something they're not good at? Like a oh yeah, dance I mean, getting team? outside of your <laughs> or playing the getting bassoon? outside yeah, <laughs> getting outside of your um, I think stepping outside your comfort level with yep. with anything I think is is you always learn something from that and certainly you can gain adaptability and again I mean it, it, being part of a 
practice, whether that's, again, large, small animal, exotic, I mean, being part of that, you know, getting that veterinary experience, you're going to learn, you know, you'll see oh, you're gonna how learn. adaptable you have to be. Right, exactly. So, um, again, that's one of the other reasons we consider experience to be so important. Sure. And if you can't get that veterinary experience yet, I would, I would say maybe outside employment and, like, food service mm-hmm. industry. You have to be sure. adaptable. People are yeah. coming in. You got to be. You got to be jumping through hoops. So do something that's going to make you more adaptable. Yes. And if you're writing your essays or if you're in the interview process, I mean, talking about that adaptability and how you know, giving examples, whether they're veterinary related or not. So if you are in food service or at another job, you know, kind of explaining how you how you know the adaptability and other um, things that you've learned from those experiences carry over into what you expect veterinary medicine to be like. I mean, that's going to be really valuable mm-hmm. too. Good discussion, Dr. Yeah. Mandisi. I was I was like, what are we going to talk about for <laughs> 30 minutes about ability to handle animals? But we talked about the importance of that skill set because it means you've really had the time and the experience in the practice with a veterinarian. Oh, I'm I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited about this one. I usually am like, I don't care. About this one. I really don't. <laughs> so thank you so much for being on the show today. You're very welcome. I'm Alex Avellino, and we'll talk to you soon.